In this episode of the Purposeful Work Podcast, our third in a series on NetView, our guest is Dr. Tim Clydesdale, sociologist and vice provost and dean of graduate studies at the College of New Jersey. NetView grew out of an eight-year project in which 88 colleges and universities across the United States developed programs designed to foster a sense of purpose, calling, and vocation in the lives of their students. Tim led a massive multi-year mixed-method study of 26 of those campuses. He interviewed hundreds of students, alumni, faculty, and staff, surveyed thousands more, and the results were summarized in his book, The Purposeful Graduate. We'll dig into the results from that study in today's episode. Welcome to the Purposeful Work Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Dick. The Purposeful Work Podcast is brought to you by PathwayU, an online career assessment system that uses predictive science to help you find joy, meaning, and purpose in your career. For more information and to join, go to pathwayu.com. That's pathway, then the letter u.com. Our guest on the podcast today is Dr. Tim Clydesdale. Tim is a Philadelphia native with a bachelor's degree from Wheaton College in Illinois and graduate degrees from Princeton. He began his career as a faculty member in sociology at Gordon College and has served at the College of New Jersey since 1996 as a sociology professor and now as vice provost and dean of graduate studies. Tim's work has focused on young adulthood, higher education, and American religion, and he's presented this work all over the world. We are very excited to have him join us for this conversation on promoting a sense of purpose in education. Welcome, Tim, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Tim, start by telling us about your own vocational journey. What is your sense of purpose, and how did that emerge over the course of your life and career? That's a great question. I would say it's my sense of purpose has been a journey in and of itself. I grew up in a fundamentalist home in Northeast Philadelphia, youngest of five boys. My father was a telephone installer. My mother was a part-time maid. And in that fundamentalist home, there was a lot of emphasis on the idea of, of doing God's will and finding God's will. Now, the problem was there wasn't a whole lot of uh, understanding of how you would do that. Some people have kind of likened that to almost a, a divine game of clue, you know, so, oh, if you know, it's raining on this particular day, it means this. And if it's, you know, if you have a really warm feeling about that, that's what it is. And so that wasn't particularly helpful to me. And there's obviously a number of people have written books about better approaches to that. So by the time I got to uh, college, I began to encounter some of those. And I moved into more what I would call a reform view, which is to love God and enjoy God forever. That was a, a more robust sort of understanding of, of that. And I'd say where I am today, and, and I get asked a lot about my thoughts on vocation when I go and, 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 and talk to different campuses about this, is that I really see vocation more generally as kind of a, a double helix that kind of spins throughout your entire life and involves two different strands. The one strand I call discernment, and that's that delighting aspect. What brings you joy? What are the kind of gifts and talents you have? What do you just love doing and get lost in? You find the state of flow in, for example. And the other, though, I think is equally important, and, and I call this the, or uh, actually as David Brooks initially kind of called it this and popularized it as the summoning strand. What things are you kind of 
do you need to do right now? Are you summoned to? And that's more the demand side. And I really see my vocation is just kind of following this. There's at times where I'm, I'm thinking about something that I'm, I just want to explore and use talents and gifts and abilities in. And then all of a sudden I'm in it and then boom, the, the, the summoning side kicks in and you're, and you're doing things that way. So that's, that's where I am at this point you know, as I think about it. I'm pretty sure I, I heard a call out to the Westminster Shorter Catechism in there. You you did indeed. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. One of the things I've deeply appreciated about following your work, Tim, and kind of your career from afar is both the, the insights that you have garnered from what you've learned from your research, some of which you've just shared, but also how you've embodied that and kind of lived it out. Well, you know, uh, there's always a gap between belief and, and behavior. I, as a psychologist, I'm sure you understand that very well, but I do attempt to try to connect the things that I think about and write about with, with how I at least intend to live. So, All right. I'm curious about the origin story for the research effort that culminated in your book, The Purposeful Graduate. How did that project come about? That's a, a, a kind of a funny story. I usually frame it this way. So if you're at a, at a conference and a program officer from the Lilly Endowment or any other major foundation walks up to you and says, would you have time to talk at about two o'clock this afternoon? The answer is always yes. So that's kind of what happened to me. Chris Coble walked up to me at that point. He was program officer. He's now vice president for religion at the Lilly Endowment and said, you know, do you have time to talk? Now, I had previously met Chris and talked with him at a couple different points about some of the programming that they were doing. And I had received some money through a Louisville Institute sabbatical grant. And I was honestly, when I talked to him, being pretty dubious about his claims of these extraordinary impacts that this that this money was having. I was like, well, yeah, of course, that's what they're going to tell you. You're the person writing the checks, right? So I was, I was kind of dubious in these previous conversations. And so Chris kind of, I think, knew that I was kind of a straight shooter. I was going to, you know, I wasn't going to be just, you know, tricked into thinking something was valuable. So he approached me and said, you know, I think we'd like to have you lead this, this kind of national level evaluation of this program. And my early questions are, well, that sounds really interesting, but what if this thing's a colossal waste of time? You want me to write a book about that? Who's going to read that book? He said, well, if that's what you find, we'll release you from the need to write a book, <laughs> which I can't even imagine someone publishing something like that. But it really just came about because he approached me. I was at a meeting at the Society for the Scientific Study of Religion. He would go to it from time to time to talk to different people. And he had kind of already thought that I might be a, a good person to do the evaluation or, or at least play a role in it. So that's how it started. Because the College of New Jersey was not one of those 88 schools with a grant. You had sort of an objective, obviously you're a sociologist, you're a scientist. Mm -hmm. So you brought some objectivity to the effort. I brought objectivity to it, but at the same time, I was someone who was a researcher on religion and, and yeah. someone who identifies as a Christian as well. So I think he yeah. thought I would be both objective, but also sympathetic. Yeah. Well, there, there are a lot of books that are based on research. A lot of, uh, it's not that hard to kind of do a pulse survey or, or a poll and then use that to frame chapters. But I want to give listeners just a sense of the massive scope of this effort that led to the Purposeful Graduate. You and your team spent time on two dozen campuses engaged in ethnographic observation, which resulted in volumes of field notes. You conducted almost 600 audio recorded interviews with current and former students and faculty and staff. 
You collected data via survey from more than 2,000 more students, alumni, faculty, staff. Most of these data were collected from schools that offered programs designed to foster a sense of purpose, calling, vocation, but you also included students at other campuses that didn't offer those programs who could then serve as a comparison group. So obviously this yielded an enormous amount of data. And I wonder if you can just reflect a little bit on what your original goals were for the project and how those goals informed the study design. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, at, at a very basic level, my goals for the project were to see, did this work? Did it work at all? Then it was to kind of find out in what ways might it have worked? Did it work as something that impacted students in an academic way? Did it impact them in kind of a career planning way? Did it impact them in, in a sense of their values, their, out, their outlook and their decisions that they made? Did it impact the faculty and staff that it passed through? Did it impact alumni afterwards? So those were all kind of the things that I was trying to, to do in this. And, you know, that, that, were, that were my goals. Now, the interesting thing was, you know, that was how I initially dis- set this up. I was only going to be looking at 12 schools, I thought. I soon found that the, the creativity that the Lilly Endowment allowed campuses made 12 to be much too small of a sample. And so I really had to reconfigure once I got on site and got talking and seeing this. I needed to, I, I more than doubled the size of, of campuses that I studied at that point and ended up studying a total of 26 of them because they were just so different. There, was, there were differences within the 88 that had won awards in terms of just the religious traditions they came from. And so I wanted to try to, you know, get a good representation of those. And then there were differences in how they chose to even structure the program. So, so the study design was kind of informed by that need to adapt to the, the diversity of, of, of schools that were participating in this. That was one of the cool things that struck me about the project, the iterative nature of it. it. You sort of adjusted and expanded the scope of the project based on what you were learning as you started. Yeah, that's, you know, I, I, it's, it's one of those things that I, when I teach, you know, method students, I talk about the iterative part of that, especially when you're working in a more qualitative project, it's designed that way. Now, I did have some quantitative elements in this, but it was mostly a qualitative project. And so you expect it to kind of go through iteration. Sometimes it's just, it's surprising, though, how much you can miss the mark from your initial guess as to what you think is going to be enough to what you really need to do. Yeah. So walk us through some of the most important findings from the study and, and maybe comment a little on how what you found converged with what you expected. Well, one of the things that was kind of surprising was how much vocation has staying power. Mm-hmm. And there's really two levels of that. It has staying power with the individuals. And this is something I really started to see as I was tracking students over time. And as I was talking with alumni, they would talk about how Things they had learned, in some cases up to six years previously, were still being drawn upon when they were kind of faced with decisions and they needed to kind of discern a path. And that was, that was really surprising to me because honestly, my initial gut level was this program is going to take idealistic students, make them more idealistic and completely useless in terms of being able to find work or things like that. So that, I I mean, I I was really stunned by that part of it. Uh, So it has staying power. That's the one thing. It also staying power institutionally. Keep in mind this, this, the grant money ran out 
in during the Great Recession. And so many campuses were contracting their budgets in very severe ways and were really struggling to figure out what to do with that. And yet over 90% of them had the programs continue on well after the money ran out in some form or another, typically kind of picking out the hits, the strongest thing, but they kept them continuing. It became kind of central to their identity. And I thought that was a remarkable outcome. So that was one of the things I thought was interesting. Another one was that there's really two things that the, the best programs did, and you need to do both of these in order to have the, the impact. One, there has to be a discernment process, okay? And that's something that college-age students were kind of the quickest to, traditional college-age students are quickest to kind of jump on. They like that. That's sort of looked at the lens within, who am I? What are my skills? What are my joys? That piece seems to, to draw them. But you have to pair that with a practice or an action element, which was generally took the form of service. And that was the magic combination. So it's, it's one thing for you to decide, yes, I really want to work with children, for example. Great. Now in service, spend the next two years working with children in internships and in summer camps and so forth. And that was when you put those two together, it, it was a really powerful combination. And I know there are many different ways to put those two things together. You mentioned expanding from 12 campuses to 26 in part, as you sort of began to appreciate the range of programming that these campuses had developed. And, and I know the, the grants provided lots of latitude for these schools to do that. What were some of the most innovative initiatives that you observed over the course of the study? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of them, and I write about some of them. One of them probably most innovative was the historically Black college that funded a professional gospel choir director to come and organize a really good gospel choir so that students would then come to the chapel. Chapel was offered every Sunday on campus, Sunday mornings. It's, I think that's a bit distinct to HBCUs. And then also they ended up adding one on Wednesday as well. The choir was so good, won so many competitions. I heard them, they were phenomenal. And then pair that with really good kind of vocational preaching with a variety of guest preachers as well as the chaplain herself. I thought that was a, a really clever idea and it really worked. And then that same person also created a leadership institute in combination with the athletic director. So now every student that would come for a preseason, before their preseason even started, they had a two-week leadership institute where they learned what it meant to be a leader and a representative of the campus. And of course, you know, once you pair this now with academics, I mean, when the college students have a unique relationship with their coaches, like pretty much when the coach says jump, they say how high. I mean, there's a, the coaches are in the lives of their, of their athletes in very powerful ways. So this was a combination of effects that was really, really powerful. The other set of things that I think was really good that, that campuses did is they zeroed in on the sophomore year. I subsequently write that that is the sweet spot for these sorts of conversations, but I largely learned it by people that figured it out other ways. Some people did it as a sophomore, larger campuses might've done it as a sophomore retreat. That kind of worked in a good way, but that was kind of a one shot and you need to figure out how to follow that one up. The one that I thought was most impactful was a campus that created a sophomore reflection residence hall. 
And you had to apply to get into this. Then you had weekly meetings with 10 of your residence hall co-residents and, and a mentor could be a faculty, a staff member, an alumnus. You went through reflection exercises. There were service activities you did together with the residence hall. There were guest speakers that told their vocation stories. There was courses that were tied to vocation that were held in a classroom in the residence hall. So it became this like nerve center of powerful sort of change. And so that was another kind of set of things. Working with the sophomores was, is, is a really smart thing to do. Some of what you're talking about is a total de-siloing of career services. It becomes something that the whole campus embraces rather than an office on the periphery that you send students to when they start asking questions about what major I should pick. Very much so. In fact, a number of these campuses have subsequently renamed their career services offices to be offices of vocation and career or vocation and calling, things like that. And it's the career people who are now doing this. And honestly, they're delighted because, you know, so many of the times they get stuck basically as resume shops, you know, <laughs> students are coming in the last, you know, two weeks of the campus, like, oh, I need a resume. And it's like, no, this is all right, we'll help you with that. But, you know, we're designed to help you through the process. And so it's a way for them to kind of engage students much earlier on and thinking about these things. In the book, you write about students transforming into grounded idealists, you refer to them, and, and also becoming citizen leaders. What do you think is the tipping point for that kind of transformation among students? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And it really is, I think, when you, when you get that magic combination of well-designed reflection programs and well-designed service programs, and you put those two things together well, that really, to my surprise, made people, yes, they were idealistic, but they really had a sense of how hard it was going to be to live intentionally, to serve, you know, people that can be very hard to, to help or communities that are really uh, have a lot of deeply rooted kind of challenges and so that was, that was honestly a surprise for me, but the, the tipping point is really that reflection combined with service. And then if there's one other thing I would throw in there is when these, these things combine together to create a community, a community among students who thought likewise, and a community among faculty and staff who said, yes, this is what, this is what college needs to be about. And if you could get both of those communities going, that was, that was phenomenal. You recently made a significant shift in terms of your own role at the institution that you've served at for a long time. Just in time for the pandemic, you joined the dark side, became an administrator, now our vice provost and dean of graduate studies. I'm curious now with those leadership, that leadership hat on, how has what you've learned from the campuses you've studied influenced your own approach as a leader? at the College of New Jersey? Yeah, thank you for that question. I'd say there's really two, two thoughts that come to mind. The one thing that I saw across the, the, the faculty and staff in these various efforts was putting students at the forefront. 
that college is about students serving the students that you have and helping them find their paths and, and be really well prepared for it. So, so that's something I've carried forward here. Students are at the forefront. What is it that they need? What, how can we best support them? How can we nurture them? Not the students we might want to have, not the students we wish we used to have or we did have and we don't have any. The students we have right now, what can we do for them and how can we help them best as possible? That's the one thing. And I think that's just that's something that I think good administrators in general will have as, as a shared view, although it, it may be a shared value, may not be always a shared practice. The other thing that I, I try to do, and I, I got this, I, I created this typology for faculty and staff in, in the book. And I said, the hardest place to stay in this typology or this cultural field is in the center, not pull too much to being a cosmopolitan, not, not, not too, you know, uh, of a local, but somewhere in the middle, you know, not too much in a rut, but not too much kind of, uh, you know, hyper busy, staying in that middle, and I call them the good citizens. And, and for me, as an administrator, one of the things I really em- try to emphasize is, is being consistently grateful for the good citizens that, you know, carry forward the good work here. That 20% of people who, you know, do the 80% of the work on every institution, you really need to be thankful to them and express that and demonstrate that and show that. And so I I really tried to do that. NetView, you know, we mentioned it started as an eight-year project with 88 schools receiving grants from the Lilly Endowment. Now it's, it's a network with 272 colleges and universities who are paying dues for the privilege of being members. Did you foresee this kind of, I mean, you mentioned staying power, but did you foresee this occurring, this sort of expansion for purpose and calling and vocation within these types of schools within higher ed? So that's a great question. And the answer to that is yes and no, in part because when I was doing a lot of my research, this network had already gotten launched. And I I had an observer. I wasn't able to attend for another reason. I had an observer at the initial launching an organization meeting and was aware of this kind of growing. It was about half the size that it was now when I was when I was doing my research, but it, it had already kind of begun. So I knew that this idea had legs and it was going to start going somewhere. What amazes me is how it's continued to kind of grow and continued to kind of build. And I think one of the reasons that this has become such a, a powerful sort of kind of a quasi movement, it, it needs to get even larger, I think, before you can really put the moniker movement on it. But I, I think it's that this turns for many, many private institutions kind of struggle to make the case for what is it that they offer that the state school down the road you know, what's different that, that, the, that the private is offering compared to that state college down the road that's offering it for less than half the cost. And they're coming around to the idea, well, I think it's something about the legacy that we have, our history, our connection to a, a religious tradition or a faith tradition or, or a faith origin, even if we're no longer active, and the fact that we can have conversations with you much more freely and much more deeply than than the public institutions can have. And so I think a lot of places are looking for ways, how do we leverage our distinctiveness and and leverage it as a strength of people? And so I think that's a a big part of what's going on here. Tim, I so appreciate your sharing your expertise with us on the podcast today. More importantly, 
thank you for all the ways you've used expressed your gifts in the world to make things better. Just so grateful. Well, thank you. It's it's great to talk to you and and by extension, those that are listening to this podcast. I'm just grateful for people who are interested in in young adults that care about them, that want them to to thrive. So so thanks to you all. We've been hearing this episode from Dr. Tim Clydesdale, author of The Purposeful Graduate and The 20-Something Soul, and Vice Provost and Dean for Graduate Studies at the College of New Jersey. This is the third episode in a series exploring NetView, the network for vocation and undergraduate education. Thank you, listeners, for downloading and listening. Please write a review of the podcast. Share us with friends and colleagues who are interested in learning more about purposeful work. The Purposeful Work Podcast is brought to you by Pathway U. Kyle Christensen is producer of the podcast. To learn more about Pathway U, go to pathwayu.com. And as a thank you for listening to this episode, Pathway U is offering a 20% off coupon code. When you check out, simply enter the code PurposePod. I'm your host, Brian Dick. We'll see you next time. <laughs>